Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. A convergence of events, including the murder of George Floyd, the pandemic, and a deep economic crisis, has produced a rebellion in the streets and a shift in public opinion that wasn't expected even a few months ago. This mass movement is taking place in the run-up to a November presidential election, an election that many consider one of the most important in American history. Now joining us to discuss the movement and how to sustain the movement and build into a more transformative motion and what that means to be in the context of a presidential election, what it means for the movement, is Bill Fletcher Jr. Bill's been an activist since he was a teenager. Upon graduating from college, he went to work as a welder in a shipyard. He's worked for several labor unions in addition to serving as a senior staff person in the national AFL-CIO. Fletcher's the co-author of Solidarity Divided, The Crisis in Organized Labor and a New Path Towards Social Justice, and he's the author of They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Pleasure, Paul. Thank you very much for inviting me. So uh, the, the movement faces some challenges or uh, uh, obstructions even, you could say, both from the right, meaning Trump and, and kind of strengthening of a police state and law and order society. Um, but also from the leadership of the Democratic Party, which traditionally and now would like to merge the movement that's taking place uh, into simply an arm of the Biden election campaign. Uh, on the other hand, it's not like the results of this election don't matter to the movement. So it's a complicated movement for activists and, and the people involved in trying to organize and lead. What do you see as sort of the main challenges and, and how's the movement dealing with them? Well, you know, it's interesting, Paul. Um, I was thinking about your introduction. And for the last several election cycles, people have frequently said, this is the most important election of your life, whatever that election cycle was. And I got sort of, I started feeling like it was the boy who cried wolf. But what I realized is that what's been happening is that the polarization in U.S. electoral politics has been sharpening with each election cycle. And it's brought us to this point where this particular election, I do believe, is one of the most important in U.S. history. Um, because if Trump wins, uh, I truly believe that he will be convinced that he has a mandate for authoritarianism uh, and and further irrationalism, uh, and this and even if he doesn't win, uh, I'm very worried about the kind of provocativeness that he's engaged around with the the right wing neo fascist right. So this is a, this is a very deadly moment. Now the. Sanders' campaign, the campaign of uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, was obviously of great significance and then came in for a landing for two reasons. One was he was outflanked by Biden, uh, who had a Southern strategy 
and uh, Bernie didn't, in my opinion. And then the COVID crisis. And in the aftermath of uh, Sanders suspending his campaign, a significant minority within his campaign announced that they weren't going to be participating in the election by voting for Biden, if Biden was the nominee. And I think that one of the things that this reflected was a misunderstanding of what's at stake in the November election. And we can talk some more about that if you want, but I I think in essence, uh, many people view the election too much as if it's American Idol, as opposed to recognizing that this is not an election between two individuals. This is an election between the forces of democracy and the forces of right-wing populism. That's really what this is. And, and within the forces of democracy, it's a very broad, uneven front, but um, it's a front nevertheless. To give the argument of the people you're mentioning who supported Sanders or some who didn't, but do not see Biden as a credible alternative, uh, they would say sections of the Democratic Party that certainly are around Biden and and if things are to continue as Biden has in his past, I wouldn't rule out some change in that. But if he's consistent with who Biden has always been, um, he will be with with and guided by and perhaps a vessel for sections of the Democratic Party who I don't think are all that democratic. Uh, you know, I mean, they do believe, I, I guess you could say, at least in the kind of uh, constitutional law that we had pre-Trump. And, and that isn't saying a lot, especially, as you know better than I do, if, we're, if you're poor and black, there never were many constitutional rights during the eight years of Obama. I lived in Baltimore and even even the Department of Justice, when they did the review of the police department, said people's constitutional rights are violated every day in Baltimore. That said, there still was a certain amount of, of rule of law, um, which I agree with you, the, the Trump type of forces would like to get rid of. And we can talk about why. Um, but but when you say the forces of democracy, uh, are you a little concerned that you're that? within that broad definition of the forces of democracy, it's giving a little bit too much to the corporate Democrats and their allies in the financial sector and such. Uh, Even though I I would agree (laughs) they're better than Trump, I'm not arguing uh, that that way, but don't we have to, doesn't the movement, don't we have to kind of Mm -hmm. talk about the need to defeat Trump without creating any illusions about who Biden is. Absolutely. And I think that one of the lessons of the Obama years uh, revolved around illusions that people, too many people had, frankly, the wrong assessment of Obama, completely overestimated him in terms of believing that he and his administration were going to be progressives, not just liberals, but progressives. It was a wrong assessment But what was even worse than that was the demobilization of massive segments of progressive social movements in in the name of uh, giving Obama a chance and being supportive. I think that we hopefully learned 
an invaluable lesson from that experience. Maybe we didn't. So, uh, so yes, I think, you know, I have no illusions about Joe Biden. Uh, there's so many areas where I disagree with Joe Biden. But I look at the moment as one of, can we get more space to organize? Can we influence Supreme Court appointments? Can we influence other court appointments, agency appointments, et cetera? Um, Right now, it's clear that we can't, not with uh, Trump in office. But then you add on to that one of these very scary things of these armed right-wing demonstrators, uh, you know, just last month, who were demanding the uh, reopening of the economy, uh, and they were doing it militarily. Uh, this is something that's different, Paul. I mean, it's, I mean, there's certainly a history to right-wing white vigilantism in the United States, but to get the open support of the president of the United States, that is different. And, and so I think uh, that, that you're right, we should have no illusions uh, about Biden, that we have to be prepared from day one, day one meaning the day after he's elected, to be on his case like white on race. Uh, but that still involves decisively defeating Trump. And that's different than people voting for the Green Party, for example. Voting for the Green Party is not a vote against Trump. It's not a vote to defeat Trump. It's an expression of individual dissatisfaction. The way the polling's going, the way the pandemic's going, the way the economy is going, barring some remarkable turnaround in the next, what is it, four or five months, and, and I certainly don't expect it, um, Trump's going to lose this election. And, and I thought he was going to lose all the time. I never thought he could win this election. I thought his, his win was an anomaly because Clinton, Hillary Clinton was maybe one of the worst candidates imaginable. And, and and ran a terrible campaign, and, and you know, not campaigning in the swing states and so on. But I, I, now it's starting to feel to me like Trump knows he's going to go down, which is why, why his his bigger aim. And when I say he, it's not just him; it's the people around him, the Sheldon Adelsons, the the Steve Bannons, the the real hardcore fascist sections of of the elites. Uh, and I think they're planning for uh, this broadcast empire Trump was planning to launch in 2016 because everyone thought he would lose then. I think it's more important to these forces to consolidate that 35, 40 percent of the population that can really be drawn in to a, a almost overtly racist and fascist movement build a broadcast empire and political machine based on that. And then they didn't make another run at the White House. And because uh, the way Trump is not even trying to moderate his message, uh, it, it, to me, he's, he's thrown in the towel on the election. But he hasn't thrown, he and his forces have certainly not thrown in the towel on building what you're talking about, a, 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 a virtually militant right-wing uh, fascist movement. Correct. I, I think that that scenario that you've painted, it, it makes a lot of sense to me that that would be an objective. I would uh, qualify that slightly, though. See, I think 
when you look at Trump since inauguration, he has done nothing to significantly expand his base. He has regularly taken almost every opportunity to thumb his nose at even potential allies. What he keeps doing is reinforcing his base. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that 25 to 40 percent, whatever it is, uh, that is thoroughly reactionary. People I, def- I describe them as zombies, people that have lost their humanity. And that's, I think, his objective number one is making sure that they are so energized that regardless of all else, that they will turn out to vote in November. And then second, if they don't, there's a couple of possible scenarios. What you just described is one. Another scenario is that he decides not to step down and and either tries to cancel the election or claim that the election was fraudulent and throws us into a constitutional crisis. So I think that there's a number of potential scenarios and that means the progressive forces need to be ready in a different way than we have in a while. Uh, and we need uh, what I've been calling democracy brigades. We need well-organized groups that are ready to ensure that the vote is protected and that should he play any shenanigans on election day or the day after, that we're basically ready to shut the country down. Uh, there's an interview I did with Larry Wilkerson on the analysis website now, which is about just this point. Wilkerson is part of three working groups uh, uh, with some pretty heavy hitters from the former State Department people, intelligence people, politicians, uh, from you know, even a fair number of used to be at least in the Republican Party, about just this question of will Trump go if he loses. Um, one of the significant things Wilkerson talked about is these generals that came out against that uh, PR stunt at the church. Um, he says was really a shot across the bow. Uh, Millie, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and several others, I think Dunford and some, and some others, have come out and actually critiqued the uh, uh, Trump for doing it, but the subtext uh, is that if you try to uh, n- prevent the constitutional uh, transferring of power, the military is not going to support you. And, and really, that's what it's going to come down to. Uh, if the military won't support Trump, he's going to have to go. If the military splits, then we're into a very weird shit show. And, and, I, and I wouldn't Put it past the military as a split because so much of the military in the lower ranks, but also in the senior ranks, are very hardcore evangelical. There's been a real movement to organize right wing evangelicals in the armed forces. Um, but if it's but if there's a decisive Biden win, I don't think they can do that. But in any case, how does the movement respond to this now? The the movement's in the streets been very focused on the issue of police reform. There's, you know, more demands developing, which are more broadly about social and economic equality. But it's still very siloed. First of all, city by city siloed. I don't know if there's any organization that's really national outside of the Democratic Party. Maybe the Poor People's Campaign is you know, closer to national. 
Um, doesn't that, doesn't there need to be some really broad popular front that's national in scope outside the Democratic Party that gets big enough to have some some influence on the course of events? Oh, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I've been advocating almost as soon as things jumped off after the murder of Floyd and the, and the protests started, um, is that we need what I've called a people's anti-repression coalition uh, at the national level. There are, as you said, there are certain national groupings, the Poor People's Campaign, the Movement for Black Lives, a few others. But we need something that is broader, something that touches on elements within organized labor, uh, and something that seizes on the demands that have been emerging out of these movements. This is a spontaneous set of protests, which you have to keep reminding people, this is not like an organized insurrection where there's a political party or some organization leading it. This is a very broad grouping. And so even when the slogans get raised, whether it's abolish the police or defund the police, there's myriad different interpretations because this is a very broad, spontaneous movement. So I, I have been arguing that we need something that is posing uh, demands such as keeping the troops out of our cities, um, demilitarizing and restructuring the police, rethinking policing, uh, justice for the those that have been lynched, and taking um, and being uh, vehemently anti-austerity, and and we need that kind of broad front at this moment, precisely to deal with this issue that you're raising of siloing, but also because what will invariably happen at some point this movement will crest, if it hasn't already, and if there is nothing institutionalized to really seize on this energy, there is a tremendous danger that a void will emerge. And in that void, there will be various right-wing forces that will um, uh, emerge. And I don't, and I'm not just talking about white right-wing forces. For example, in the African-American movement, there is this reparations group called ADOS, uh, American Descendants of Slavery which have been arguing for a while what is in effect a right-wing nationalist argument that the only people that should be recipients of slave reparations, assuming slave reparations are one, would be people who are the direct descendants of people that had been enslaved. So basically the clock starts in 1619 and ends in 1865. So there's a very narrow interpretation as to who really is the relevant population. It completely ignores what happened after 1865 and the continuation of racist and national oppression. So you have these right-wing elements, even within our own movement, that have various objectives. And if progressives don't consolidate institutionally as well as programmatically, the door will be open for all kinds of nefarious forces to enter in.
when you look at the Bernie Sanders campaign, which was until these protest rallies across the country, uh, probably the most transformative mass motion in a long, long time, maybe since the 60s. Uh, the Sanders campaign, to a large extent, took off because of the role of a few unions, particularly the nurses union out of California, became national. Um, it was it was really something to see how just like one, two, maybe three unions, communication workers, a couple of others, how how effective they could be because they have an organization, because they have money, because they have organizational skills. If there's going to be this popular front, I, I, and I should back up, obviously, because these unions are connected to sections of the working class. Uh, which is well, is critical to any real movement that's going to have backbone and be able to sustain the kind of blows that will be coming. Um, the union's got to be in the midst of this, and and even more, uh, if if the unions have really progressive leadership, then hopefully they help be part of the leadership. I don't think it's just going to come from unions, but but they need to be a big piece of this. But are there the unions there to do it and to? Uh, I don't mean you are the unions there are the union is there any leadership that could play this role and to what's happening in terms of the struggle inside the unions by progressive workers to try to become the leadership of these unions in in some ways Paul we have not gotten over the split that took place in the AFL-CIO um, in 2005 which was devastating and truly disoriented the movement well, talk a bit about what that was, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know. Basically, what happened under the leadership of the Service Employees International Union's then president, Andy Stern, several unions that included the United Food and Commercial Workers, the Teamsters, the Carpenters, uh, and uh, Unite Here, left the National AFL-CIO claiming that it wasn't making changes fast enough. Um the unfortunate thing was that they did not engage in a real debate. They basically made pronouncements and demands on then-President John Sweeney uh, of the AFL-CIO and then carried out this debate, I mean, carried out this split. What, change, what changes did they want? Well, it was sort of hypocritical. They claimed that they wanted greater attention to organizing by the AFL-CIO, but the reality is that many of the unions that were directly involved in the split had fought the AFL-CIO having a greater role in organizing. Um, and, and so in some ways, Paul, I would say that the split was driven by psychological factors, by money, um, by frustration. Um, a, a number of these things kind of came together. And instead of a path forward, both sides ended up becoming weaker. The result has been a, a certain level of strategic paralysis at the national level and fragmentation, different unions doing their own things. And, and, uh, and so in this particular crisis that we're in right now, you have a national AFL-CIO that has been pretty silent ever since Trump was elected. Uh, seemingly unable to respond to events. You have individual unions 
that, uh, like, for example, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal, Municipal Employees that have worked with other affiliates within AFL-CIO, as well as working with SEIU, sometimes at cross-purposes with the national AFL-CIO. So you don't have this sort of strategic consensus. Um, then we lost some good people. Larry Hanley, who was the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, was one of the most visionary leaders, and he died suddenly. Um, so what we have in the, in the midst of this current crisis, some unions that have spoken out, American Federation of Teachers being one, um, but you don't have labor saying, for example, that we've got to build this kind of popular front, this People's Anti-Repression Coalition. Which is SEIU has announced, what is it, $1.5 million to get people to knock on doors uh, for Biden, uh, which is what happens in these situations over and over again. Is these unions just throw everything into the election campaign. That's exactly right. I, I once interviewed John Sweeney and before the uh, Obama election, and I, I raised this question then to him. Don't the unions have to have their own independent politics and don't just believe in, in the Democrats? And and at the time, there was this um, I think it was called the Employee Free Choice Act or something like that. That's right. That's right. That's right. And uh, Obama had promised this. And, and when I, I raised this with Sweeney. And I said, you know, you, you really believe you're going to get this thing passed? And Sweeney says to me, I'll eat my shoe on camera if Obama doesn't get this passed. Well, of course, Obama didn't pass it, nor did Sweeney eat his shoe. Well, I think one of the things that happened, and that's a really interesting thing. So for your listeners, the Employee, Employee Free Choice Act was a, a legislation to make it easier for workers to join or form unions. And, um, and I think one of the things that was not factored in, even by some of the progressive unions at the time, was that this needed to be a mass campaign as opposed to a lobbying effort. Uh, they were expecting that Obama was going to do something. Well, first of all, Obama's first objective in when he was elected was health care. He was very clear about that. And, and so he threw down around healthcare and around uh, restarting the economy. Um, the union movement as a whole did almost nothing to make the Employee Free Choice Act a mass campaign and instead was relying on lobbying. But here's the other factor, Paul. There were members, there were elected Democrats who had, had been in favor of the Employee Free Choice Act when they knew it would not pass. So they, they lost nothing by supporting it. When Obama was elected and when Congress shifted, all of a sudden, the possibility of it passing emerged. And it was at that point that some key legislators got weak legs because they never really wanted to see it pass. And that, that tells you something about the, the breadth of the Democratic Party, how, how um, the, 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 the range of politics that exists there. What Sweeney and others needed to have done, particularly given the time period, we're talking about 2009, in the middle of the Great Recession, was to have tied the campaign for, the, uh, uh, for employee free choice 
with the response to the recession. They didn't. It was a major strategic mistake. And, and so, yes, your point to Sweeney was absolutely right, that labor needed its own clear agenda, a working people's agenda that it was advocating. And, and most of the union movement retreats from that in favor of, at best, a legislative agenda for their particular unions. But I think you were right on time. There are some progressive unions. You could see but the split over the unions that supported Biden in the beginning of the primaries and a few that supported Sanders, uh, locals all over the country that actually defied their national leadership that supported Biden and supported Sanders in spite of where the national leadership had gone in terms of the endorsement. Is there any organizational form or does anyone propose an organizational form I don't know how what, exactly what it is, or it's some subset of the AFL-CIO or just something else altogether, where progressive locals and unions can can create more of a force together uh, and, and not be dominated by what essentially are right-wing union leaderships. There's something called Jobs of Justice, which was formed in the late 80s, largely by the Communication Workers of America and the Service Employees International Union. And it is a network of local unions and uh, community-based organizations that fight for workers' rights. And it is very progressive, and it is one of the outfits, frankly, uh, Paul, that I think needs to be championing a people's anti-repression coalition. Because I'm not, I think if you're waiting for the National AFL-CIO to take such a step, you'll be waiting a very long time. And that either a group like Jobs of Justice or some groupings, grouping of major unions need to take the step in that direction. And, and there's precedent for that. Um, I remember in the 1980s when several unions broke with the National AFL-CIO around foreign policy, specifically around uh, Central America and South Africa, and, and took very strong stands against U.S. involvement in, um, in, in Central America and, their, and the support of the United States for the apartheid regime. These unions, they infuriated then AFL-CIO President Lane Kirkland, but they took a very proud, independent stand. We need something like this in this moment. Yeah, I think it's it's really crucial. The uh, the need for this movement in the streets to not lay down their arms, quote unquote, on arms or their placards or <laughs> banners when Biden gets arrested. Arrested. I'm sorry. I'm thinking in my mind. I'm thinking people getting arrested <laughs> and Biden right, getting right. elected. Uh, well, who knows? Maybe one day all these people will get arrested. But anyway, um, I think it's it's going to be more about what this administration, Biden administration, is going to do than repression, at least early on. And I, if it looked like a Trump presidency, then I think the issue of repression would come to the fore because the I, I, an authoritarian type of police state, law and order state, I think was very much in the cards. If it's a Biden, then I don't think we're going to see that, at least not early in the administration. If the economic crisis gets more severe and there's really 
tens of thousands, millions of people's rising and unemployment marches. And then I think the Biden administration will see whether it goes an FDR kind of route or it goes a more European fascist kind of path. And the American experience so far was FDR, but things have changed since FDR. So we'll see. But I think there needs to be a movement and, and there needs to be the unions, at least some of them, that, is, that are progressive have to help construct this that says we're not leaving the streets. The movement is not over because you got elected, Biden. This is just act two um, because we're not going to let your administration do what the Obama administration did, which is set the table for Trump. And you're not going to set the table for something worse than Trump in 2024, and, and and really hammer this administration uh, in in a in a direction that is not the Obama neoliberal path. Um, the, the, there's certainly unions that talk like that. Uh, you know, the communication workers were involved with Sanders and helped create. Uh, Larry Cohen helped, who was leader, was leader of communication workers, helped create our revolution, which was an allied organization of Sanders. I said the nurses. Uh, there were a few others. Uh, teachers in Chicago. Uh, you can find across the country some human, unions that have some real backbone. Um, but there needs to be – they need to get together, and we're not, certainly not seeing it. No, I think that that's true. Um, so first, in terms of uh – Biden and U.S. history, it's important for people to remember that when Franklin Roosevelt was elected, he was a, a sort of mundane liberal, and there were not great expectations, or hopes, not great expectations, that Roosevelt's original conception for the New Deal was very much based on the framework of Mussolini's corporate state. And that, but that the, the, there were a couple of critical things that one must take note of. So first of all, there were movements that were churning at the base, unemployment, unemployed workers, um, a developing new union movement. Uh, and that was very important. The second thing was that to Roosevelt's surprise, elements of his own class were opposed to concessions to working people, that there were these forces to his right that were looking for a more authoritarian response to the depression, fascistic, if not outright fascist. And uh, in fact, some of them conspired to overthrow Roosevelt. And, And so under those circumstances, Roosevelt was pushed to the left in ways that he didn't seem to have expected. We have to understand that the, the, if, if Biden is elected, I don't, I, I only bet on sure things. Um, but if Biden is elected, we have to, as I said before, be ready to move very quickly. And, and so one part of that is this issue within what you're asking for in terms of what unions do and one of the reasons that I keep pushing jobs with justice, because I think that there needs to be a force on the left that's pushing. Because at the top, and I have a lot of experience with this, Paul, at the top of the union movement, even some of the most eloquent leaders and progressive can be seduced 
as I saw under the, um, during the Obama years and earlier during the Clinton years, by Democratic Party administrations that open up their doors and welcome these leaders. <clears throat> In some cases, they can come almost any day, any time of day or night. And this really tickles these leaders to no end, and they become seduced. Yeah, I, I saw that. I used to talk to some union leaders, presidents that would get invited for tea at the White House and consultative meetings after consultative meetings, mostly with senior staff, you know, once in a while, maybe with Obama. But they would just come back with stars in their eyes as if they just met, uh, I don't know, the greatest movie star in history. Yes, absolutely. I saw this all the time. When I was uh, on the national staff of the AFL-CIO uh, during the Clinton years, I remember when uh, Al Gore came to an executive council meeting and I left and I went to return phone calls. And so the chief of staff later asked me, well, why did you leave? And I said, because Al Gore had nothing to say that I was particularly interested in hearing. Uh, I said, the reality is that he was going to tell us that workers are getting screwed. Well, we know that. Now, when Al Gore goes to speak to the Chamber of Commerce and tell them that workers are being screwed, I want to hear that speech. It's not like the Chamber of Commerce doesn't know workers are getting screwed. That's their job is to screw workers. No, that's right. But but laying laying into them, right? But, you know, why do I need to hear Al Gore tell us this? It's like a white person telling me that there's racism. Well, yeah, okay. Um, and, but these leaders were... Uh, they were enthralled. So we'll have to get past this, which I think at the end of the day is going to necessitate some um, major changes within the union movement, some major insurrections, uh, because most of the leaders, frankly, are worthless. Well, I think this pandemic moment and, and this deepening unemployment crisis, and it's not going to end anytime soon. This is just nonsense that the pandemic's going to be over by the fall and so on. We haven't even hit the fall and the second wave is here. Wait, wait till the third wave and the fourth wave. Um, a lot of workers, I mean, the tens of thousands, millions really, who never imagined they could be in poverty and unemployed are. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of these are union members. And That's their right. unions aren't going to do a damn thing for them. And, and and it's going to become a serious issue. And I think one of the litmus tests of of, of the union movement and, and for workers to fight on in order to overthrow the old leaders that won't respond or rise to the occasion is the question of organizing the unemployed and, and not just right. unemployed union members, but unemployed, period. And start thinking like an organization that represents the class, not not just the you know sort of privileged workers. Couldn't agree more. All right, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us on the Analysis Dot News podcast. Mm -hmm.